Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name's Chad. And I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 62, and we are reading The Way of Kings by the inimitable Brandon Sanderson, a part of the Stormlight Archive, and we are reading chapters 18 through 22. That's right. Next up... We're going to be covering chapters 23 through 27. Nice. So get your bookmarks ready. I like it. Odd numbers. They're odd. Like me. So if you are just joining us, let us lay our spoiler policy out there for you. Chad here has not read these books. Nope. I have. So we will not spoil anything on this podcast past chapter 22 of The Way of Kings. This includes any discussion about the Cosmere of any of Brandon Sanderson's other works. We're not going to spoil any of that. So if you're just getting into this series or these this author's work, you can listen without worrying that any of that's going to be spoiled for you. We're Cosmergen friendly. We are Cosmergen friendly. So that's where we take the word Cosmere. And then we take the word virgin, and then we crack them together over a skillet, <laughs> and then we throw a virgin into the mix, <laughs> we fry it up with some onions. We like those word omelets. Exactly. And onions, when they're fried. So what did you think of this section of chapters overall? I enjoyed it. There's some good stuff in here. I, I especially enjoyed chapter 19. I think in the very ending of it, once again, I think you you found a good place for us to end it, you know, where some interesting stuff happens. So, yeah, I enjoyed it overall. We get a little bit more into uh, Kaladin's stuff with Bridge 4, and we can kind of begin to also see how things might be working for him. So, so yeah, I enjoyed it overall. Well, I'm excited to get into the chapters with you. Let's get into the nitty and the gritty. Chapter 18 is called High Prince of War. In this I am chapter, the high and, and of you war. know what? Hold on, time out okay. before we get started. Okay. I'm going to go over some pronunciation stuff. Oh, okay. Because we've had a couple of comments from listeners. We, we are not audiobook people, we are reading the actual book people. So we are doing our best with these pronunciations. But yeah, our English listeners. This is my who, second uh, language. You, you got to bear with me. <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> Narrator. It was not. <laughs> it was not his second language. <laughs> it's definitely my second language. <laughs> so I learned English when I was 13 years old mm-hmm. when I moved to the States. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. <laughs> he was born in the States. <laughs> okay. So we're doing our best with these names, but uh, listeners who have been checking out the audiobooks have been chiming in. So, and I could tell it's driving them crazy. So, yes. Let's just go well, over it. I I know I've been on the other side of it. it right. So. so, we have Sadius. We have Adolin. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have Yasna. 
Oh, that's what that... Okay. Yeah, so J's are Y's in Sanderson land. Just We, we got that straight. Okay. We're, we're going to do right. our best here, people. So chapter 18, High Prince of War. Adolin, he's on a date with his current flame at a leather worker's shop. Wow. Wow, oh, that's hot. Came on down to the rendering factory for a little hanky-panky. <laughs> They are investigating Elicar's saddle strap. It's not very romantic, and his date gets pretty ticked off and leaves. He also goes to visit an ardent named Kadash to discuss Dalinar's condition. Dalinar struggles to administer the war camp and to convince Elokar to give him more authority over the other high princes. Then a high storm arises, and Dalinar and Radarin get stuck in a barrack during a high storm with other people around. Boom, boom. So that's kind of what happens plot-wise in this chapter. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that happens between the characters, a lot of development, a lot of things revealed, though. Let's talk about Adolin first. Let's do it. Mostly because I need to get used to saying Adolin and not Adolin, <laughs> as I've been saying for years in my head. So Adolin, again, it's reinforced to us that he's a player. Players be playing. Yeah, it, it's interesting because this whole time, because you're kind of in his head, and like you can just tell he's not really, he's either not really into this girl, or he's just so sort of distracted by what's going on with his dad. Right, well, and then, so this is the same girl that he was thinking about when they were on the hunt mm. that he wished he'd brought along. Yeah. And that, oh, this new one, she might actually be something. And already he's, and when she, she huffs off, he's like, yeah, that one's not going to work out. Yeah, whatever. A- and really, the thing he's most concerned about is that Renarin's going to make fun of him yeah. for another girl dumping him. Well, like, how many chicks are hanging out at this war camp, like... You got your choice of chicks to date here? like Yeah, pretty much. So, and we're going to get in. I know we talk about this a lot later. like Right, the gender is, roles and everything. But yeah, this is, the war camps have become the center of Alethi society. And the fact that men can't read. So ha- they wouldn't function without wives yeah, and yeah. daughters there. If you're a, a general or any kind of soldier... Or a merchant, even how do you you don't conduct business unless you have a female relative that can read for you, that can do mathematics for you, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of women. There are gears, all kinds of gears turning in my head. I'm- yeah, he's he's squinting. He's just <laughs> squinting at me, you guys. So that's kind of the main thing that that I took away from this section about Adolin, that and his devotion to his father. He really doesn't let anyone criticize him or put him down, even if he agrees with what they're saying. Yeah, I'm still stuck on the idea of the sort of rules of the divisions of labor within the the society. It's just striking me now as we're talking about it, how pervasive that is in different levels and different ways and different places within the society, because we talked about you know, what we just spoke about, about how, you know, men and women's roles seem so clearly defined and, you know, there's, you know, very little muddying of that water. But we also spent a lot of time in this chapter, you know, particularly in Adolin's 
parts talking about the call and the glory, right? And so right. this idea that you're supposed to find one thing and just pour all your energy into this one thing. But then later, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but later we get to sort of meet, quote, the radiance, unquote, and they talk about how the each kingdom does that as well. You know, they become this specialized part and they embody that function within the overall Rosharan society overall. So it's it's just interesting to me at how pervasive this is throughout different stages of society, different levels of society in this world. Well, it is really interesting to look at what we find out in the next chapter, chapter 19, in relation to this chapter and in relation to the society that we see today. So definitely, I'm going to get more into that when yeah. we get to chapter 19. But in this chapter, we do learn that people do choose a profession at a young age called a calling, mm -hmm. and then they choose one attribute of the Almighty to try and emulate. And that's just, it's very unusual for anyone to ever change that. So it's kind of like, like what whatever you pick when you're probably a very young adult, that's it. That's what you're devoting your life to. That's what you're going to base your, your personality. It's like getting a tattoo on your personality when you're like 18, like that, like that's it. You're, yeah, you're kind of picked. So it's interesting. And the, what we learn about the gender relations and the development of that in this chapter is interesting because we see Dalinar meeting with Teshav, maybe Teshav, I don't know. I don't know. She's the wife of one of his officers. So he has hours long meeting with her and they're talking about administering the war camp. And she's not just, so the women here are not just these like passive little scribes. They're not just there to like crunch numbers and write down what the important men have to say. He's meeting with just her, not her husband. Mm -hmm. And he's telling her, these are the things I want you and your husband to do. I want you to figure out a better way of doing this or that. So they're the thinkers and the planners. You know, they're not, they're the, the intellectual side uh, of a two-person team. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Dalinar is, talks about how he's been encouraged to marry so that he will have someone to do this for him because really it, it it's more difficult for a man to, to, to function. Particularly a, a high-level right. person in the society like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just kind of interesting. I also thought it was interesting that we find that ardents are owned. Yeah, I, I picked up on that as well. Also, they live in buildings that are shaped like boobs. Yes. Yes, they do. It's like a boob that sticks out of the ground. <laughs> it's for aerodynamics. <laughs> they did talk about the mound quite a bit. They did, yeah. <laughs> I've always thought that women were more aerodynamic than men think they're less but that's okay <laughs> uh, so we do get a little bit more background on the history of the religious order we do um, we we find out that at some point in their history the church tried to take over and they got too big for their britches they got too big for their britches they formed something called the hierocracy and they basically used a bunch of false prophecies to 
gain control, gain political power, and try to run the world. And it was ended by someone named the Sunmaker. We assume he's some kind of ruler that came along. But because of this, the ardents, so these were priests of the hierarchy, they were outlawed. And then this system of ardents came up. And ardents are basically slaves. They're owned by various nobles as a way of keeping their power in check. And also as a result, mysticism and prophecy are now like completely taboo to the church. It's, it's anathema. You don't even dabble in that area at all. So the fact that Dalinar is having these episodes with these flashes where he thinks he's able to predict the future or he's getting visions from the almighty that is really taboo really taboo it is not going to be cool it's not going to fly with this religious order i also think this is the, the closest that i've seen brandon sanderson come to sort of directly commenting on any kind of real world religious stuff here he he says um at some point Instead of shadowed prophecies and pretend powers held by a few, we have a population who understand their beliefs and their relationship with God. Yeah, absolutely. So that's just a little, I don't know, I just saw well, that. As, yeah, that's very similar to what happened in our own history. Right. Yeah, I mean, this the whole idea of the hierarchy kind of smacks a little bit of like old school, like, Catholicism. like crusade era Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Also, Renarin super emo he's so poor very winona rider beetlejuice era yes very right he is but you know uh, so renarin is following dalinar around as he's having these meetings with people and one development that happens is that dalinar decides he's kind of reflecting on renarin and and what a good kid he really is and how he just really gets he gets knocked down because in a lefty society, if you're not a fighter and you're a male, you're not respected. And he's openly mocked and he and he thinks about himself and how would he react if he was in that situation and how he had enough trouble being jealous of his older brother not being in that situation. And he looks at how Renarin is, is Adolin's biggest supporter and he's really proud of him and he, he determines that he's going to try and win Renarin a set of shard plates. Mm-hmm. which would probably even the playing field a little and give him a chance to maybe become a fighter. And we find out that Dalinar has, has won a set of plate and a, a shard blade in the past, but he gave it to the king to distribute to one of their stronger fighters. Well, it's just interesting as well to me, as much as we see Dalinar attempting to sort of steer away from the problems that are endemic in Alethi society, like just the uber alpha male for the sake of it. But he still, he sees his son who doesn't have those qualities. He recognizes that he's still worthwhile. And he's like, but don't worry, we'll give you some cheater armor and it'll make everything okay. That's true. But I'm not sure how much we would expect Dalinar to be at this point, trying to turn his own society on his head. He's just, I think he's at the place where he's starting to, just starting to go against the flow himself with the beginning of these visions. So I I think he is trying to turn his society on its head, but he's still a part of that society. So there's there's only so objective he can be. Right. 
So a couple other plot points that happen in this one. We do find out that Elicar's saddle strap was cut, but maybe not intentionally. It could yeah, have been an accidental thing from could a... Could have been one of the, the buckles yeah, exactly. not being tightened properly. And we also have it highlighted again what a new kingdom Alethkar is. Like second generation. It's just been founded by Elikar's father. So it's very fragile at this point. Yeah, I don't think I realized that until read this section of just how just how recent a development this united Alethkar is. So I don't think I quite realized it until this section. A couple of other notes that I had in here. Talk about Parshendi raiding bands coming out at night. And I just had to ask, what are they actually raiding? Well, it sounds to me like they're after the gem hearts. Themselves. Everyone is is after the gem hearts. And, and you can assume maybe that the Parshendi are using them for the same things that the... Well, uh, that's what they presume anyway. Right. I think there's something else going on. It's interesting to me as well that the last few chrysalis, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> chrysalises? Chrysalises. Chrysalises? I don't know. Uh, that were found very close to the Alethi camps where the Parshendi have not typically been coming. Right. I feel like the Parshendi have some control over that process. Hmm. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I just sort of feel like they do. Um, you know, the other thing that I noticed is that um, Elikar says, when he's talking with Dalinar about his father, he says, the past is irrelevant. I only look forward. <laughs> and I'm like, is that what it says on your LinkedIn profile? Like, <laughs> who are See, you trying to kid? I feel like we get a little more depth from Elokar in this chapter. You know, he's rolling his eyes, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so you don't agree with me? I don't know. I, I, I you know, I don't disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I just think Elokar's a douche. He is, but he's not a caricature just ninny. You know, in the last chapter that we saw him during the battle, he was just a boob. I mean, he was... D- oh, Not character. that I use boob as an insult, but I mean, he was a ding-dong. Like, So you're using his- ding-dong as an insult? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we don't use female genitalia as an insult. We do that too much in our society. He was a real penis. <laughs> There's a war on men, I mean, is what I'm saying. To, <laughs> I'm not trying to insult snack cakes either, but <laughs> <laughs> but Elikar was a real ding dong. Okay, he was a real ho ho, just a dingling. <laughs> <laughs> he was a hairy set of balls. <laughs> That's what he was. He was a testicle, a single testicle. <laughs> Oh, that didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was kind of like a caricature. He was waving his head, saying, are you a god? You know, and just doing yeah. the dumbest things possible. In this conversation with Dalinar, he's not that bad. He's, 
you know, he kind of goes that way. Like he's obviously kind of clueless and he has a certain set idea in his mind and he's not very open to wisdom, but he, he does pause when Dalinar is like, hey, this is really what I think is best for the kingdom, you know, because basically what Dalinar is saying to him is, it's really bad for our kingdom that we've been gone this long. Yeah. Like pretty much as soon as you became king, you left and we've been here for years. Maybe we should think about how long are we going to stay here? Well, yeah, it, it's a, it's an absurd notion that you would spend six years doing the same thing in this stalemate and just never question if it was strategically the right thing to do. And that's exactly what they're doing. And the only reason why they're staying there and doing it is because of the gem hearts, you know, and it, everyone involved in it feels like they're gaining and getting richer and growing power. I sort of almost have this feeling that like the Prashendi are very happy to keep them here playing this stupid game. All the while, they've got something else planned. Right, because for the high princes, they could care less if the kingdom was unified or not. Yeah, they I mean, don't care. Right now, it, it makes sense for them to keep things the way they are, but nobody's going to shed any tears if the kingdom fractures and goes back to what it was before Gavilar yeah, came along. Because they'll all go back to their respective individual kingdoms that much of the richer. Right, So, but Elokar does listen he's not open to abandoning the vengeance pact because to the Alethi looking strong is the most important thing. But Dalinar, but, I'm sorry, I cut you off. But Dalinar is able to frame it then as, Hey, well we either need to do this or we need to just finish the war. But either way, we've got to get back to Alethkar. But in typical Ned Stark fashion, and Dalinar is becoming more and more like Ned Stark mm -hmm. with every chapter I read, mm -hmm. he does not realize that he's playing a completely different game than everybody else is playing. Exactly. So so Dalinar asks to be made the High Prince of War. And wow, hand... High Prince of War, metal. <laughs> so metal. So metal. <laughs> which would give him power over the other high princes in combat. And Elokar says, well, I, we're not, they're not ready for that. Show me that you can get one, two of the high princes to work together on like a plateau assault. And then we'll, we'll see. Which I didn't think was a terrible way for him to approach it. Right. That was a decent compromise that he was. It's what he does next in the later chapters. That's the real serious douchebaggery. Right. I have one other note about about sort of the world building and the nature and stuff. Mm -hmm. We get highlighted again. I don't know if it's been brought up before, if we really talked about it, but the fact that the seasons on this planet come and go quickly and randomly. So like oh, it can be pick up on that. Yeah, yeah, so it could be spring for three weeks and then maybe it'll be summer, maybe it'll be winter. Nobody knows. So mm. it's it's mentioned here and a couple of times in the next few chapters that we're gonna cover. But uh, it's springtime now, and and at one point Dalinar says, um, "Boy, I hope it's summer next and not winter." You know, mm. um, and that, but that these seasons are, are like completely unpredictable. Mm, I didn't know. I didn't pick up on that. There was one other thing I did pick up on though. 
It says that Ruthar, who was waiting in the lobby to go see the king, was standing there wearing a vest with sleeves. So you mean a shirt? <laughs> Listen, I've just discovered that people around the world call different things vests. That's not true. It's true. No. Yes. In the UK, what what we've always called a wife beater, I don't know. Always, since the beginning of time. <laughs> it's always been called since that. Since Jamestown. Since the first wife beater came out. <laughs> they stepped on the shore and they were like, Jebediah Johansson, come forth and bringeth me my wife beater. I need a pack of cools <laughs> and to lovingly rub my Camaro. I rub upon it. Not everybody calls it that, though. Apparently, the Brits call that a vest. That's a vest, like a sleeveless undershirt. I'm just saying that's why it's we won vest. the war. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, very strange. That is so, strange. I mean, and this is an entirely different planet. So, if they want to call it a vest, even though it has with sleeves, sleeves? it's a vest with sleeves. <laughs> I was wearing a shirt, <laughs> not like those other jackasses <laughs> with their sleeved vests. <laughs> Where else are you going to roll up your Marlboro lights? Where else? You need a sleeve on that vest. You need it. Are you ready for chapter 19? Hold on. I have to look that up because I... What are you looking up? Now it's bothering me. Oh, Ruthar? Okay. Hold on. The world makes sense again. The shirt <laughs> underneath was ruffled and white, and his blue trousers were loose. I think what makes it a vest is that it doesn't button. Okay. At least according to Alethkari, Alethi fashion. That makes some sort of weird-ass sense. I'll go with it for the sake of the podcast and moving forward. You know what? It makes more sense than slashed, than skirts slashed with something. I never understood that in fantasy novels. Oh, they're all that Her way, right? Her skirts were green, slashed with cream. What does that mean? Like slashed... Like, like they're slit like they're and slit? they have a fabric underneath is of a different color. Oh, okay. I don't know. Like a slash doublet? You've never heard that? No. Or I guess you, you've obviously heard it because you just didn't quite understand what it meant. I can show you. I'll show you a picture of what it means. I'll show you what it means later. <laughs> you wear one later. <laughs> Sorry. I've, I have several slash doublets upstairs. <laughs> my gosh. Let's move on. So chapter 19? Chapter 19 is called Star Falls. In this chapter, yeah. we experience one of Dalinar's visions. We do. We find out that this is his 12th vision in just a few months. In the vision, he is a commoner during the time of the Radiance. He fights the Voidbringers, or some creature he thinks of as Voidbringers, alongside of several Radiants, and talks to someone that he believes is the Almighty. A lot of fighting going on. There was. This is a high-action chapter. And we've heard a lot about Dalinar's visions leading up to this. Mm-hmm. 
And we finally get to see one from his perspective. Yep. And we get a lot of a lot of tidbits thrown our way about kind of the prehistory and what it was like. And if we're so I guess first we have to you have to decide. Do do you think that Dalinar's visions are real? Do you think they're a real reflection of things that happened? Or are, are they a real message from someone? I have to go with they are real. Not necessarily that what he's seeing is necessarily 100% historically accurate, but that they are somehow inspired metaphysical visions of some kind. I have to go with that. In part because from a meta-analysis perspective, it's difficult to imagine them not being legitimate and, and what that would mean. That sort of ties back to, to what happens at the very, very, very end of this section with Sadius, but we'll get to that later. So if we're assuming going forward on the assumption that I'm going these are real, this forward is, that this way, is yeah. what it was like, we get to actually see what the radiants were like. Well, and it, it's also because of the way the radiants move. Now, when, it first, when I first read this and the radiants like fly in in their armor... I was like, what kind of weird-ass Shazam, you know, <laughs> are we seeing here? You know, they're flying in, you know, one hand in front of them, big <laughs> big chin, spit curl, you know, like Superman in armor. Like, this is weird, you know. But then I remembered, wait a minute, we've, we've seen this before mm-hmm. in Seth and how he talks about surge binding and just right. moving gravity in different areas mm-hmm. and I and I then I remembered oh wait a minute no this this makes sense even in the context of what we already know now there's no other way for Dalinar to know about that so the fact that he's observing something that he shouldn't know anything about that we know is related to stormlight and can be used that way leads me to believe that it's legit. Right. So we see these radiants and they're also glowing with stormlight. Their eyes are glowing with stormlight, just like we saw Seth's eyes do Mm -hmm. when he was surge binding. So yeah, the assumption is that that's what, that's what they're doing. We also find them able to heal with a touch. Mm -hmm. Well, and they were also carrying around something that looked, like a fabriole as well. Right. At least somewhat related. Right. In some way. They also seem to be able to dismiss their armor. Or at least their helmets, yeah. Or at least their helmets, much like we've seen others dismiss a shard blade. So that's kind of interesting. Yes. So we find out that the Radiance, their 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 home base, their their kind of main compound is in a place called Urethiru. Say that. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Or Erythru. Right? Don't know. Audiobook <sighs> listeners, please chime in. But they, they live all over a place called Alethala, which is historical Alethkar, we guess. And they, they describe themselves as being, um, you know, one kingdom with the duty to study the arts of war, to stay vigilant for the desolations, to be kind of prepared. So this is, we kind of see where... The war-like obsession of the Alethi comes from. Exactly. 
but also I think it smacks a little bit of the call and the glory of Voronism as well. Right. The what we see quote today seems like a more perverted or watered down maybe version of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It does not appear, however, that they have soul casters. Correct. Or, or at, at least, least the, the common, common people. people yeah. Don't. Yeah. Right. So, or nor shard blades, you know, kind of able to be used to, because at some point, Dalinar asks if there's a cave nearby. He's talking to someone in the vision and they're like, they're like, people can't cut rocks. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Which is weird because in our society, at what would be sort of a historical corollary to this time, the ability to cut stone would have, would have existed. And so, uh, you know, not something to really focus on, but I did find that a little bit strange. So he asks his uh, v- fantasy vision wife, are attacks like these common? And she says, during desolations, perhaps, but not in my life. Mm-hmm. And then lay the radiants say, oh, one or the other, they say this other radiant. Right. You know, says that the desolation is coming. So I'm just deciding that I want to get myself like a shard plate sandwich board <laughs> that says, repent. The desolations are coming. Right. To the 930 Club on September 6th. Get your tickets now. <laughs> the Duke and Duchess podcast are brought to you by StubHub. <laughs> he also asks, when is it? You know, what year is what it? What year is it, yeah. And they say it's the eighth epoch, the year 337. So only 330 years, seven years after something. Right. Now, I think we understand that the the priest who wanted to sort of take over mm-hmm. happened after the Radiance. Yes. So this is prior to that happening right okay i think kind of the way beginning is the event we see in the prelude which is the the heralds kind of abandoning Mm -hmm. their time on earth or their fight and then leaving the radiance in charge and then what we see now in this vision is somewhere in between where the radiance are still an organization they're still um they're still united in their purpose. You know, at the end, we, we haven't talked about it yet, but at the end of the vision, uh, a voice who apparently comes through every vision talks to Dalinar. And, and the first thing it says is, I miss these times when they were all united in purpose and working together and all the different orders worked together. Mm-hmm. So... The the voice then goes on to say, you know, you've got to unite them. I wish I could do more for you. And it's very kind of cryptic and confusing. And Dalinar asks it some questions and seems to answer. Mm-hmm. But so this seems to be a time when the Radiants were still in charge and they were all still doing, working together and working to help mankind. We know that at some point they... They experienced a fall. They kind of turned against mankind. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but mm-hmm. this is some time before that happened. Yeah, but this is still when they're all together. And like you said, Alcar specializes in fighting. 
so your other kingdoms can focus on other things. So, so they're sort of like the people who supply all the soldiers and the warring, sort of like, sort of like Texas for the United States. Something like that, yeah. Because if you've been in the military, you realize that eighty percent of the military come from Texas. Really? Yeah, that's one hundred percent fact. That. Yep. Also, eighty percent of all hand jobs under bleachers also in Texas. In Texas. In Texas. They yes. have a lot of bleachers in Texas. Exactly. It's true. It's not the hand job thing. It's just the bleachers, you know. A couple of things that the radiants say that I thought were interesting. They say fighting against the, quote, 10 deaths, unquote, changes a person. Mm-hmm. Anytime I see something with the number 10 in it, it makes me think on the heralds. Right, because we have 10, 10 heralds, 10 orders, I think, of the radiance yes. have been mentioned. So not sure what that means, but putting a pin in that. Dalinar asks them, were those void bringers that we were fighting, these monsters, you know, that that they were fighting, and they were like, no, no, that was simply the midnight essence. Though who released it is still a mystery. Midnight essence? You mean like rogue semen? Are we back to rogue semen again? Oh, man, who released this midnight essence all over the bathroom sink? Damn it, Jeff. Other people have to live here, too. Ah, man, it's on my hands now. How many things in this book? All of them. Are we going to be able to? All the things. Okay. But seriously, Midnight Essence sounds like the name of a cologne. It sounds like a lot of things to me now. I mean, before, <laughs> it, it really did. Before, before you took it to face value, right? Before, I was just like, wow, that's a creepy sounding monster. Like, Bleed smoke and stuff. I'm just thinking like a black and now white. Now you made it all dirty. Just thinking like a black and white commercial on a Sunday afternoon between the football games. And it's like smooth jazz. And it comes on and it says, Midnight Essence, a fragrance brought to you by Idris Elba. I'd buy that. (laughs) And it's like him getting in and out of a Cadillac, but like the only thing that isn't black and white is the little bottle of Midnight Essence. That's in color. I'm listening. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) See, it's all about packaging. You can do whatever you want to with that. Life spread, as long as you put it in the right packaging and the right marketing <laughs> behind it. What the hell is Midnight Essence? That's the weirdest name for a monster I've ever heard. It's a weird name for a monster. The Midnight Essence. <laughs> I didn't think it was weird until just now. <laughs> it's super weird. But you know, okay. Anything else in this chapter you want to ruin yes. for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more thing <laughs> one I want to. One more thing I want to completely ruin for you. Now, now I don't. Um, I don't have anything else to ruin. But there was one other observation. Correct me if I'm wrong. I do not believe that at any point in this chapter we witness any spren. I believe you are right. There is one point in the chapter where Dalinar says. It's too. It was too dark to see the fear spren or pain spren One of the, yeah, that yeah. must mm. be gathered there. Yeah, yeah. So they point that out, and then never anywhere else 
do you see it? But there's yeah. several mentions to there being light, mm-hmm. you know, sporadically and, you know, it's it's nighttime, so so it's difficult. So you would have thought that between the light from the fire or the tor- or the little pot with the coals in it or whatever she was carrying around and the light coming off of the radiance that with all the fighting, screaming and terror, there would have been people dying. There would have been death spren, fear spren, something, fire spren from the flames. I do not think it was ever mentioned. No, you are correct. So are we at a time when spren don't exist? Or they're not in the vision? Or they're not in the vision, yeah. Dalinar, it does say that uh, his shard bl- his shard blade is never in the vision. He can't, doesn't yeah, ever, yeah. can't ever summon that in the vision. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I'm ready for chapter 20. Chapter 20 is called Scarlet. And it's a short chapter. It's a flashback to Kaladin's youth. It's set seven years before the current narrative. And in this chapter, Kaladin tries to save a little girl who's had a bad fall. It's been two months since Wistolo's death in this flashback. He handles the wound with aplomb, but she still dies. And his father tells him that he needs to learn when to care and when to let go. So just a few pages long, but we see one of Kaladin's main internal obstacles introduced here. Well, one of the first chapters, I think it was the second chapter we saw with Kaladin, where he, we first see him after he gets captured and made a slave. He talks about seeing the face of a dead girl, you know, and I had said that I thought that, that he would somehow be involved in that girl's death. It's not quite how I thought that would be. Um, but, you know, we get an example here of Kaladin sort of doing all the right things and trying, but not getting the results that he wants anyway and how he sort of handles that. There was one other thing I noted about this chapter, because it is a short chapter. It's really only kind of one other thing I noted. And that is that when the girl dies, she does not speak any sort of crazy, weird gibberish. She just bleeds out and dies. To my recollection, we've only seen a handful of people die. The king, King Gavilar, Mm -hmm. who did not speak all kinds of weird gibberish Mm -hmm. before he died. Well, he spoke some, he said some weird things, but, um, but it wasn't the same. We've seen this little girl die. There's been reference to other people who have died in Cal's presence, but we didn't see him sort of on the page. And then the guys who died on the Shattered Plains, who spoke the weird stuff. Leads me to believe that there's that, that is happening, that is isolated to that area. I don't recall in all the like little prescripts to the chapters that we read in part one. You know, it said this year our Ardens observed X, Y, and Z. This was a light-eyed noblemen or whatever. Uh, but I don't remember if they ever said where it was. So either way, this phenomenon is not universal. Yeah, that's a good catch. 
I just think it's really cool how these flashbacks are interspersed. So you have the whole like this character's whole first act of his story, right, is kind of broken up and put through the main narrative. And it just it's such a nice storytelling tactic in that it's making you always wonder when that inciting incident is going to come. When is that incident going to come that's going to propel him into the current story? Yeah. And you know that each little piece is building towards where he is now. Yeah, correct, yeah. And especially, you know, the the way they're each, the breaks in the flashback story gets used to punctuate the important moments in the current timeline. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have this where we see Kaladin's first time not being able to handle losing a patient mm. and taking responsibility for something bad that really had nothing to do with himself. Yeah. You know, and then we, that kind of sets us up really nicely for the next chapter where he's struggling with the same things and having his father saying, you know, I, I struggled with that too when I was young, but you'll you'll grow past it. You'll get over it, and we kind of know that, that it does not appear no, to be the case. No, he doesn't. At least not yeah. at this point. He hasn't yet. Yeah. So again, it's just we see that he's got all these external obstacles as well, but this is his internal obstacle that he's going to have to get past, or he's going to be a really boring, depressing character to read about <laughs> well, for two thousand yeah. more pages. Well, these flashbacks they remind me a little bit in. Not at all in terms of content or tone, but from a technique standpoint, like you said, the way they punctuate different moments, it reminds me a little bit of the interludes in the lives, the lives of Locke Lamora. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a good device. I like it. Yeah, yeah, it works. Ready for chapter twenty-one? Chapter twenty-one. Let's do it. It's called "Why Men Lie." Why do they lie? Pussy. <laughs> That was a I'm, shorter answer than I thought I'm, it would be. I thought you were asking but I, a I question. But I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> I didn't think it was rhetorical. I thought you really wanted to know. No, that's fair. Okay, yeah. That's okay. fair. All right. So we can move on? <laughs> yeah. Don't even need this chapter. I mean, I guess we should. <laughs> In this chapter, Kaladin faces the consequences of saving the three wounded bridgemen. In the last battle, after another painful solo workout, he gets some bad news from Gaz. Turns out that Sadius has forbidden the mess hall from feeding the wounded men. Kaladin asks the others to pool their resources to help care for them, but only Rock volunteers. Kaladin then comes up with a plan that involves volunteering for rock gathering duty, which is about as fun as it sounds. He enlists Teft and Rock to help look for a certain type of plant. I really only got a couple things in here. Although I did think this was a good chapter from like a character moment Mm -hmm. for Kaladin. And we get to see, I think, him just kind of continuing to take the next level and slowly bringing more and more people either into his camp or from the hostile camp into the neutral camp. He's just sort of slowly beginning to win people over because he's taking sacrifices and making sacrifices on behalf of others. You can kind of see where this is going, that he's going to slowly win over more and more people. I think particularly when he manages to actually save some of these cats, you know, I think you'll you'll see more of it. One of the things I thought was interesting is that Rock can see Sill. Very interesting. And he acts as though this 
anthropomorphic windspren is not unusual. Like it is a thing, like a thing with a name. He nods reverently to it as mm-hmm. though I get the impression he wouldn't be nodding his cap at every spren he sees. It's something about the nature of this spren right. becoming sentient and conscious that has happened before and he's familiar with. So it's not as much of a unique scenario as we had thought. Maybe not. That's what it seems I mean, to be. What, what we know is that he, he can see her and she has not revealed herself to him in the past, you know, and we all, we know that all Winspren can reveal themselves to whoever they want, yeah, but that, yes, that he can, he can see her. Correct. Yeah. And, it, but it's just interesting to me that he has a name for this phenomenon. So if it's been named, then it can't be the first time it's ever happened. Maybe, or maybe he just reveres Spren or... I don't think at this point we know yeah, that, that yeah. he has a name for, he doesn't quite, I don't know that he knows that she's sentient at this point. Oh, that could be, yeah. He, he just knows that there's a spren following Kaladin around and it's, he, yeah, that's, he, he yeah. may worship. We don't know that much about him. That's true, that's true. Uh, but we do know that he is one of the first to give his loyalty to Kaladin because Kaladin took his place in the bridge. We find out that his name is and, you know, audiobook readers, help me out if I get this wrong. <laughs> it's Numuhukumakaiki Alunamur. Also a palindrome. What? No, I'm just kidding. No, it's, <laughs> it's not. not. It's not a I'm like, I'm reading it backwards right now. It's not. No, it's not a palindrome. Not, not all. It <laughs> would be hilarious if it was. It, that's interesting because, you know, the Alethi, they're the symmetry of their names is important and they have this whole thing with symmetry. So it's so cool that you picked that up. We also learned a little bit more about Teft in this, in that he seems willing to help. And when Kaladin probes him a little bit about why he won't give him his loyalty, I want your loyalty and your allegiance. And Teft is like, well, I've tried that before. And Kaladin's like, I won't let you down. And Teft is like, no, no, I'll let you down. (laughs) I'm the worst. I belong here as a bridgeman, basically. And Kaladin's like, oh, all right. I changed my mind then. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? No, you're right. Never mind, never mind. (laughs) I thought it was sort of interesting to see how the other bridges are now starting to react differently to them. Right. And Rock highlights why that is, that bridge four always loses the most men. And on this last run, they were at the worst part of it, and yet they didn't. Now, I have questions for you, because Rock says, oh, this is sort of what has happened, but he does not really say why. Right. I presume it's because they got there earlier than everybody else. Why they lost fewer yeah, men. Yeah, correct. So, no, what Rock says, well, Rock says, you know, you, you saved my life when you took my place. Mm-hmm. And Kaladin says, no, I mean, you would have been standing where I was and I lived, so I didn't save your life. And Rock says, no, no, I watched the arrows go all around your head and around your hands and not hit you. And so he is saying that Kaladin, he said, I don't know what you did, but you did something that Mm -hmm. caused us to lose less men than any of the others. So he's not, you know articulating but he's 
insinuating that Kaladin has done something supernatural. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that he also says that other people see it. Right. You know, there's something strange about you. Another sort of history note. So Kaladin has a um, kind of a, a talk with Syl in the beginning of this. And they're talking about, well, she's asking about madness because one of the men that they brought back has battle shock. Mm. So he's just staring at the wall and they can't get him to get up and react. Mm-hmm. And Kaladin is trying to explain madness to her. And it's it's interesting because he's like, well, it's, you know, someone who's uh, different enough that everyone else decides that he's mad. And she's like, so you just vote on it or, yeah, or yeah. what? He's like, well, kind of. So but then she's asking about lying and lying really bothers her. And she's asking why, why do people do it? And that's an important theme that comes up here. And I want to talk about that more in a second. But the historical note is that he's talking about all the different people who have had power. And he mentions the Epoch Kingdoms. So we know in Dalinar's vision, Mm -hmm. he's told that it's the Eighth Epoch. And Kaladin tells Syl that the Epoch Kingdoms crashed when the church tries to seize power. So... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it, it That's does. That's just sort of a yeah. little... I, I just love it when all the history, the pieces kind of fall yeah, into we get the timeline. Each chapter or two, we get, you know, one more piece that we can sort of build this timeline on. Right. I wonder if that's when Roshar split from being kind of a unified set of kingdoms to them being just a bunch of warring kingdoms. Well, that certainly sounds like it was a contributing factor. Yeah. And the whole idea of power and leadership is a huge theme in this book. And what happens when leaders become corrupt is a huge theme as well. Um, Kaladin has a really good quote in this chapter when he and Syl are talking about this. And he says, you can't trust anyone with power. And she, he then goes on to list all of these people who had power and, and abused it. And she says, well, what do you do then? And he says, well, you just give it to the light eyes and let it corrupt them and then try to stay as far away from them as possible. <laughs> and it's so interesting because here we have this, this really unfair caste system, okay? And you have this character who's a part of it. And his goal is not to gain power. It's not to rise up and overthrow the light eyes. So, and you just don't see that very often. This is not what we see in a typical fantasy novel. I mean, he wants to kill them, but he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) But not for the sake of power. But he he doesn't, he doesn't want power because he really believes that. So I, I thought it was really interesting in the light of what we learned about the history of the Alethi. And it made me think about this study I read in the Journal of Applied Psychology, if you'll allow me to nerd out for just a minute. So these guys were, uh, guys and gals, were studying the interactions between a person's moral identity and whether or not they would abuse a position of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found that for people who thought of themselves as moral people and for whom being a moral person was an important part of their identity reacted differently to being put in positions of power than people for whom it was not as important. And that 
this sense of moral identity was an especially important modifier in the relationship between innate aggressiveness and ethical behavior. So it just made me think about the Alethi in that this is a people with a history of fighting and a warlike behaviors, but they've lost their sense of moral identity. They've lost their sense of being protectors of the world. And so we're just left with this kind of empty, self-absorbed, ugly culture that's that's just lost its moral center. So I just thought that was so interesting. And what we see developing with Dalinar kind of trying to turn that around. And it just raises the question of what does it take to turn a society around when it stopped thinking of itself as as a moral culture? Because for the Alethi, they don't they don't value those things anymore. They don't value compassion or generosity. Those things are seen as weak. It's very interesting. Yeah, it, it holds no value for their society. So and you can definitely see it play out. All right, nerd out over. No, that was a good one. So chapter 22. Chapter 22 is called Eyes, Hands, or Spheres. And in this chapter... Is that like ass, gas, and grass? Very similar, actually. (laughs) In this chapter, I learned a new vocabulary word. Did you? What did you learn? Oh, I know what you learned. Biscumber. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say. Go ahead. Did you look that word up? No. I thought he was making that shit up. It is not a made up word. It literally means. It's not a goliant? It is not a goliant. No. It literally means to shower someone with poop. Oh. That is the best sounding, ugliest word ever. <laughs> Biscumber. Mm-hmm. It's like bespoke or bespectacled, but exactly. Bes- Please so, let us continue. So in this chapter, we go to a dinner party. Dalinar and his sons attend a feast at Elicar's palace. Wit is there and warns him that rumors are abounding about him. We meet Navani, Gavilar's widow, who Dalinar has a raging crush on. He faces fallout for asking... He put a dent in his shard plate. He did. <laughs> Bing! He faces fallout for asking Elicar to abandon the Vengeance Pact. Adolin wants him to duel someone for the family's honor, but Dalinar forbids it. Elicar names Sadius, High Prince of Information, and puts him in charge of the investigation into the attempt on his life. Womp womp. So a lot of stuff going on in this chapter. Yeah, there's yeah, th- there's a lot of moving parts in this one. But you know what's not moving anymore? That shin of our chicken, baby. <laughs> they make the best chicken in Roshar. So a couple of things. In chapter 19, Starfalls, in, the, in Dalinar's vision, I thought it was cool that when he punched the creature, he said it felt wrong like punching something he was because it was soft yeah and it just highlights that they don't have soft they don't have mammals they don't have soft skin yeah, everything's got animals. an exoskeleton everything has an exoskeleton yeah. in this world it's just so interesting and then here you know a chicken is 
only found in Shinovar, apparently, yeah. and is a very exotic meat. Well, if you look at where Shinovar is geographically, so one, it's far, far to the west. So there's more landmass to deaden the wind, but it's also even further isolated because there's this massive mountain range just to the east of it that basically cordons off the entire kingdom. And it's on the map, it's the only part that is like emerald green, whereas every other part is like brown with some green speckles in it. Like this is like forest, you know, like really thick. So it's probably the only place where a chicken wouldn't blow away. Right. <laughs> well, and if you notice, Seth, who is from Shinovar, refers to outsiders as stone walkers. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. So you you get the impression that Shinovar is, is is not the same kind of landscape as the rest of Roshar. Yeah, yeah. Which is described as being very rocky. And, and th- if there is grass, it withdraws into the stone to mm-hmm. protect itself. Yeah, even the plants aren't soft. Right, right. There's a lot of really cool world-building stuff and insights into the Alethi social structure in this because they're, we're here at this fancy ball, basically. I'm just thinking about all the princes that Adolin had to duel. He's like, everyone, I was... I, I had to duel three princes just on my way over here and... Oh boy, are my lips tired. <laughs> you didn't hear the duels happening because we, you know, we had to go into the back room. I'm like, how did you duel three princes in this one giant room and none of us, your dad didn't hear it? Well, oh. you didn't see that the men were dueling in a spot? Oh, no, I missed okay. that. Oh, okay. You missed the art duel? I totally did. Okay, so I thought they were dueling in a back room. No, no, no. Together, it's, it's described as there being a spot for the young men are having duels. Oh, and that's the, right. And yeah, the yeah, women yeah. are doing their version of a duel, which is to set up easels and like draw. <laughs> so they're like having like sketch offs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you draw. Time flies. All right, 30 <laughs> seconds. Um, as soon as I flip this thing, everybody get now, now, right hands only. And then we have Wit sitting up on a high chair above everybody, pretending like he's roast master, but I, I'm going to call it his roasting. Eh. So so. Yeah, yeah, not not in this chapter. He's no Jeff Ross. Yeah, not not such great. But I have to say, I love the passage that the chapter title is taken from. Dalinar says to him, he's I mean, Wit's just roasting these guys, and Dalinar says, Wit, do you have to? And Wit says, To what, Dalinar? Eyes, hands, or spheres? I'll lend you one of the first, but by definition, a man can only have one eye, letter I. Mm-hmm. And if it's given away, who would wit be then? I'll lend you one of the second, but I fear my simple hands have been digging in the muck far too often to suit one such as you. And if I give you one of my spheres, what would I spend the remaining one on? I'm quite attached to both of my spheres, you see. 
And uh, I don't know. I just loved it. It's so like like Shakespearean. Yeah, that was the only clever cleverness. Part. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it it is clever. I'm not. I don't want to take away from the, most of the rest of it. Was like, hey, nun nun skull, you're really dumb. Hey, hey, you over there, you're really fat. You know, like. Was, well, and I think he said something to Navani along the lines of like. Like he's just done with these people. Yeah, he's like I, blah, 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 I, I'm, I'm just, I'm talking to them on their level. Yeah. And then he asks if she knows something that rhymes with piscumber. Because yeah. she says something to him like, "Really, wit? Like usually, yeah. Like yeah. this is where you're going. Usually, you're above this kind of humor." And yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. Ah, "I'm just kind of done." But um, he's also mentioned as being one of the only ones wearing a a uniform style. True. Yeah, clothing yeah. and a sword. Yeah, even though true. he never uses it. The other thing, and never rips on Dalinar. No, he doesn't. He doesn't rip on Dalinar. He also says something about assassins, and he says he has too much ass sass <laughs> of his own. What the hell is ass sass? You know what ass sass is? It's when your ass is sassy. <laughs> He's 10 pounds of sass and a five pound sprint. <laughs> I, no, I, my favorite is when Delinar says, I, you know, take it easy, man. Like, I'd, I'd hate for you to get killed. And he says, I see a fine man within you. And Wit says, yes, he was delicious. Yes, I thought that, that was funny. <laughs> I, I just I'm a little terrified of what assass is and I think it has something to do with Bescumber and I don't want to be at that party <laughs> right. I just don't want to be at that party you want to leave the party before the assass all the young men are dueling in the corner <laughs> sticking their swords in all kinds of things ass sass and bescumbering involved i'm gonna sit down with dalinar with the pretty lady and eat my shin chicken your spicy shin chicken because did you notice that the men and the women have different foods yeah women like sweet things so the men they don't sit together no 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 and they eat different kinds of food this sounds like a terrible place to live yeah, it really does. I don't want anything to do with these people. I also caught that, um, so when Navani, the king's mother, approaches them, she touches Adolin on his shoulder with her safe hand, so the hand mm. that's covered. And that's a gesture that's reserved only for family. So I thought mm. that was just an interesting. Like, not only are their hands in these long buttoned up sleeves, but they don't even touch other people with that sleeved hand. Yeah. The other thing I noticed is that, so after we see in Dalinar's vision these fancy sort of gilded metal things around um, gemstones that seem to be some sort of precursor to a fabrial, you would you would think, we see Navani come to the table with some sort of weird fabrial that's not one on the hand, it's something different, and then... 
Dalinar says that she was, you know, a gifted maker of fabrials, fabrial artisan or whatever the word he uses. So it's interesting to me that Yasna uses a fabrial but is frowned upon for it, but her mother creates them and that seems to be okay. I'm assuming this has to do with uh, Yasna being an atheist. Well, Yasna uses a soul caster. Oh, I'm sorry. Which is a very specific type and probably the most important type of fabrial because it is how they make their food. Okay. So that is, okay. So and there's the it's, distinction. It's how they make yeah. their resources. So they're only supposed to be used by a certain order of the ardents okay. who are all owned by the king. I, I was conflating fabrials and soul casters. So, so well, that's yeah. Okay. Soul caster is a kind of fabrial, but there are all kinds and, and it had, the book hasn't gone into that too much yet. Gotcha. Okay. All right. But they they mentioned fabrials to like give off heat, fabrials to keep wine chilled, stuff like that. But that's not the same as having a soul caster. They had do they have fabrials that can generate huge quantities of water? Do we know? I I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask another question. Trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. In the storms themselves. Is it, it, is there a lot of rain? Yes, it's it's like hurricane. And then after the storms, there's still pouring rain that comes down. Okay, okay. that's what I, I th- that's what I thought. Okay, all right. So what'd you think of Navani? Was this a new character that's been introduced? I thought she was likable. I mm-hmm. liked her, all right. She seems to be into some Dalinar. Right, so there's she- definitely... Or she's playing him. I don't. I don't know which. It definitely some uncomfortable moments between her and Dalinar. Dalinar hears her name and he's like, "Oh crap!" Oh no! And and he's so into her, but there's a lot of tension there because a she was married to his brother and he is supposed to kind of view her now as his sister, and he also feels very guilty about the feelings that he has for her because of his guilt over his dead wife. Mm-hmm. So we find out that she has been dead for 10 years, wiped by his foolishness from his mind. So that's another piece of the mystery there. Yeah, the other thing I noted all the way back in chapter 18 along those same lines is that he says he'd had everything of his wife taken from him. And depending on how you want to read that sentence, it could mean a couple of different things. Sort of like all the memories of his wife were taken away from him as a sort of circumstance mm-hmm. or by somebody else. Or he had everything of his wife take. Like he made a decision mm-hmm. to have it taken from him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly which, but here he says through his foolishness, he mm-hmm. had it wiped away. Right. Which leads me to believe that he got his memory, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Mm. Did. That's a verb. Somehow had that erased. Mm-hmm. But if that exists as is something that's possible within the society. We haven't heard of it. Right. So no idea what the hell is actually going on there. Right. 
another mystery. But the thing I liked about Navani is she was like, my son's a dope, isn't he? Come on, let's just <laughs> let's just call it what he is. He's bad at this. And and Dalinar won't hear it. So Navani apparently left the war camps. Dalinar convinced her to leave to go back and try to hold down the rest of the kingdom. Now she's come back for a couple of reasons, but mainly it's because she realized that this is where the center of the kingdom is. And she's not really, apparently the kingdom is being run by Elokar's wife and she's doing a fine job. So she's come back and she wants to protect Elokar too, but she's kind of like, yeah, he's a, he's a dope and Dalinar won't hear it, you know? But he, so we see again his fierce loyalty. Well, is it? Yes, it is fierce loyalty. I, I'm not going to disagree with that. But it's also, in my opinion, a certain degree of just plain old foolishness to not accept what you can see plainly with your own face that this guy, this king, is out of his element and does not know what the hell he's doing. But, you know, Dalinar, I feel like he's just trying to reflect the best of Alucar back to himself. And he keeps saying, like, he's a better king than than people give him credit for. He's more like his father than people give him credit for. Which means everyone's talking about how miserable of a king he is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, which apparently Navani has showed up. And within five minutes, she kind of knows what's going on. Yeah. And that and we see him being so deftly manipulated by Sadius in this. Absolutely. So in this, you know, we had Dalinar asking Elicar to make him the high prince of war and they were afraid of what the other high princes would do and Sadius is able to swoop in there and use Elicar's paranoia about these assassination attempts to get himself named high prince of information who is sort of going to be like the the investigator, the inquisitor now of the war camp and gets put in charge of the this. The spy master. The spy master. Master of whispers. He's in a perfect position to implicate Dalinar in this assassination. And Elicar just doesn't even re- realize what's going on, even though he knows that Sadius and Dalinar hate each other. He just is completely oblivious to, to the position that he's just put his uncle in. And so when he does that, yeah, Navani is like, oh, Lord. Yeah. The guy's a knucklehead. It, it, Sadius is playing the game. He's playing the Game of Thrones. <laughs> and Elicar doesn't even realize that the degree to which he's being played. Mm-hmm. And then Dalinar, who recognizes that Elicar's being made a fool out of and recognizes that Sadius is playing this on a different level, but he's, he still can't keep up with Sadius. Sadius is just outmaneuvering him politically at every turn. But this is the guy who in the very last chapter with Dalinar, the almighty or whatever voice at the end said, no, you can trust Sadius. It's the only thing that gives me any pause to think maybe divisions aren't legitimate i still think they are legitimate though mm-hmm. well and i just love how dalinar calls navani mathana yeah. which is like an aunt an honorary name for an older sister thank you older sister did i mention <laughs> that you're older 
Did I mention that you're my sister? <laughs> it's like it's like him calling her unfuckable. I was going to say auntie, but Yeah. But his eyes tell a different story. Wow. So that's it for our chapter coverage. Yeah. But before we get into interactions, let's read the letter. Absolutely. So at the beginning of every chapter in this part, part two, we've had snippets of a letter. We don't know who it's to or from, but I'll just go ahead and read everything that we have seen so far up through these chapters. Old friend, I hope this missive finds you well, though as you are now essentially immortal, I would guess that wellness on your part is something of a given. I realize that you are probably still angry. That is pleasant to know. Much as your perpetual health, I have come to rely upon your dissatisfaction with me. It is one of the Cosmere's great constants, I should think. Let me first assure you that the element is quite safe. I have found a good home for it. I protect its safety like I protect my own skin, you might say. You do not agree with my quest. I understand that, so much as it is possible to understand someone with whom I disagree so completely. Might I be frank? Before you asked why I was so concerned, it is for the following reason. Atti was once a kind and generous man, and you saw what became of him. Race, on the other hand, was among the most loathsome, crafty, and dangerous individuals I had ever met. He holds the most frightening and terrible of all the shards. Ponder on that for a time, you old reptile, and tell me if your insistence on non-intervention holds firm. Because I assure you, race will not be similarly inhibited. One only need look at the aftermath of his brief visit to Cell to see proof of what I say. In case you have turned a blind eye to that disaster, know that Aona and Skye are both dead, and that which they had held has been splintered, presumably to prevent anyone from rising up to challenge race. So quite a letter so far. That's a lot being thrown at you. It's a lot. Any theories as to who it's to or from? So that is exactly the question that Brian McClure asked on our Facebook group page and also on the website in the comments as well. And initially, my thoughts were that the person writing it was one of the fallen radiance. However, in listening to you read it just now, a couple of things caught my attention. The first being, and this is something I I already knew, but none of the names are at all familiar or really even similar to any of the names of anybody we've heard at all. Right. Almost like they're not even of this planet. The other item being that he says he's found a home for the element. Mm -hmm. And... I'm beginning to think that the element that he's speaking of is Stormlight itself. Hmm. And it leads me to believe that what is going on is that this is a polytheistic world with multiple gods. And the these this letter is being written by one of the gods. All right. And that there's warring going on throughout the Cosmere and all the different planets. 
Good That's theory. my theory. I like it. There's not much to go on. That's a wild ass guess. Mm-hmm. But we love the wild ass guesses. So it keeps us coming back. <laughs> wild ass week guesses are after fun. Week. All right, do you, you wanna... just keep supplying them? Yeah, I do. I'm I'm here to I'm here to make them. There's no question about it. Do you want to get into some of our listener interactions? Yes. So on our Facebook page, Ian James Crone asks the group, anybody else listening along instead of reading along for the Duke and Duchess? He says, I find it easier to get this done and keep up uh, while going back and forth to work listening to audiobooks rather than reading. Anybody have any thoughts about the two narrator system they're using in the Stormlight Archive audiobooks? And I'm not going to get into all the interaction back and forth, but it seems like there are some real split opinions about the quality of the audiobooks. Yes, I have heard very mixed reviews of the audiobooks. So that is interesting, although not mixed reviews about the the graphic the graphic audiobook. audiobook yeah, though apparently that is kind of expensive. But it's I've like ninety heard, hours or something crazy like that. So I I would imagine it would have to be expensive. Yeah, but they have it. you know different voice actors. It's mm-hmm. not just one person. They have sound effects. It's mm-hmm. it's supposed to be spectacular. Hoffman Art Gallery says two things. First, Adolin is pronounced Adolin, which we understood. <laughs> Second, King Biscuit Flower Hour is a real thing. <laughs> yes, we. I accept and acknowledge that the King Biscuit Flower Hour is a real thing. It's almost as real as the Pine Biscuit Pasty Ass Flower Hour. <laughs> That Eric put out there on the uh, on the Facebook page, where he took the the character from the King Biscuit Flower Hour, which is a little I don't know I guess he's a a bag of flour with a crown on his head, and uh, and put Chris Pine's head on it instead. It was it was brilliant. It, and I want that on a T shirt so bad. It's yeah, absolutely. I want that. <laughs> it's great. Eric also says if you like biscuits. Chris Pine's butthole will ruin them for you in episode 61. <laughs> it's good for you to warn people about these things. It really is. So if you haven't checked out our Facebook page, you've got to come check it out at Facebook backslash, excuse me, Facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. It's where all the cool kids hang out. And now this is different from the regular podcast facebook page yeah this is a mm-hmm. invite only group page if you request an invite we will send you one right away mm-hmm. but we have this so that listeners and people other than us can start posts and comment yeah because we have our our page for the facebook but the way facebook is structured it doesn't really give you the listener the ability to do anything you just have to sit there and see our stuff and that's not really any fun unless we make everyone a moderator and that also doesn't make any sense so uh, we just decided to create this group page where everyone can participate it's sort of made the actual facebook page kind of pointless in truth it's it's become the appendix of the internet it serves no purpose like (laughs) make the occasional announcement on there and that's about all it does um but the facebook group page is a lot of fun so also on there every week 
Theo Graham Brown puts up his Facebook post where he has sort of like, hey, here's the uh, quote spoiler section. It's spoiler free past. Uh, It doesn't spoil anything beyond the section that we've discussed, but he puts it up there so that anybody who hasn't caught up yet won't accidentally be spoiled by what's on there, which I think is a a good thing that he does there. And he he gets into quite some depth on what's happening and and lists all of his questions, uh, you know, around what's going on there. And everyone discusses it. It's pretty cool. I don't read it until like we're actually past the podcast because I don't want to be influenced by what other people are saying. But I read it now. (laughs) It's good stuff. On Twitter, E.H. Mantle says, uh, who is at Scruffy Minds on Twitter, says, I was surprised to find out King Biscuit Flower Hour is a real thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's a real thing, people. Listen, I mean, half the shit that comes out of my mouth is totally made up. Completely made up. But only half of it. (laughs) So Ian James Crone on Twitter says, have you gone to or plan to go to any of the signings of the author's he said, I read or I saw Brandon Sanderson on the Calamity book tour. He was delightful. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss, he said, led us all in a song during his Austin stop in Wise Man's Fear. How awesome would that be? That would be so awesome. In a bookstore doing a sing-along with Patrick Rothfuss. That would be the shit. So I've never gone to a book signing. Never in my life. Honestly, not even really something I've ever thought of. I've thought of it all the time. I am always really? tempted by book signings when they come... I don't think I've ever you know, seen as, one. as close. Oh yeah, yeah. When when they come around Philly or DC, I'm always like, oh, I could just go and spend six hours waiting in line, and I would totally do it. I could not. <laughs> there are a very limited handful of people that I would even wait an hour to see. If it wasn't for that aspect of it, I think I would, I would be down. Maybe I'd have to. You know what? We'll go to the next book signing. We'll hire somebody on Fiverr to stand in line from us for us. <laughs> oh, I tried to Google Brandon Sanderson book signing, but I called him Brandon Danderson. <laughs> I don't have a good joke for that yet, but we'll we'll come up with some. <laughs> it's funny. Theo on Twitter, who is at uh, Theo GB says, I can't be the only one who read that bit with Kadash, Kadash, I don't know, about Adolin's religious goals and thought, Vornism is like my goddamn work self-assessment program. It is. I've thought the same thing. Yes. I I was like, so their religion is setting a career goal? Yeah. Doesn't look like you've been spending enough time on professional development. I was like, I felt felt pressured. Like, I... Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I actually wrote in my notes, Kadash equals HR. So, like, yeah, I felt exactly the same way. So, Adam at LFC, Adam88185, likened a life spread all over the battlefield to a Jackson Pollock painting, (laughs) which I was completely down with. And then Thea and I went back and forth relating fantasy authors to darts players, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) I miss that. I feel like the Venn diagram of people who 
or really into fantasy nerd books and also know enough about darts to get that joke Mm -hmm. looks like a pair of boobs. (laughs) No overlap at all. (laughs) None. Yeah, I think you're right. They meet at a single point and it's (laughs) apparently it's me and Theo. (laughs) That's it. It's the only place on the internet where those two things have ever come together before. All right, are we ready for predictions? Yes. All right. So I have a couple of predictions this time. I think I've had more predictions per episode in this run of books than any of the other books that we've done. Yeah. I definitely think that's the case. All right, so here are my predictions. First prediction, I think Renarin's going to turn out to be some sort of super stud fighter. All right. I think there's a weird sort of psychic energy field around the shattered planes that are the cause of this sort of pre-death rant. And I think it's that's where the storms kind of come into the ground. I think this cat who found a place to hide the element jammed that motherfucker into the shattered planes and that and that's what broke it and that's why we're getting all this weirdness. Actually, that really can't be true, though, because the Shattered Plains weren't shattered back prior to the time of the Radiance. So that can't entirely be the case. But there's something weird tied to the Shattered Plains that's leading this to happen. I think, uh, I almost said uh, Sadius. I think Sadius will deliberately try to ramp up and play on the King's Paranoia. Mm -hmm. I think Dalinar... Eternal Sunshine, his Mm ex-wife. I think by the end of this book, there will be a capital letter D, Desolation. Mm. I also think that there is something metaphysical going on with Elicar and this deep-seated suspicion Mm -hmm. where he has these weird flashes Mm -hmm even when he's standing in front of his family members. Mm-hmm. I think there's something metaphysical going on with mm. that. And my last one is Dalinar is going to die. Well, that's kind of dark, but okay. Because he's Ned Stark. Uh, maybe that's why I think he's going <laughs> to die, because he's acting very Ned Starky. He is. Spoilers for he Game of Thrones. He wants to be made Hand of the King. So, oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, spoilers for Game of Thrones. I mean, Ed Blark. <laughs> See your relation to Jimmy Lanigan? Exactly. <laughs> they went to college together. Jimmy Lanigan, councilman, third district. All right. That's all I have. Do you have anything else? I got nothing. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone.